And this will be Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful this day that we're able to gather together and worship you publicly, study your word together, fellowship with one another, in short, to be edified, to be built up, to be encouraged in our faith as the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray that through the teaching of your word, you would nourish us today. Lord, that you would feed us, that you would strengthen our souls and strengthen and expand our faith in Jesus this morning. Lord, we are so grateful for your holy word. We believe that it is true. We believe that it is God-breathed. And Lord, we believe that it is powerful that you use it to transform our very lives. And that's what we want is transformation. So Lord, would you please speak to us and minister to us through the teaching of your word. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I think the only thing more difficult for us than figuring out how to clap on beat without a percussionist is figuring out how to dress appropriately appropriately out here. I don't know. It's kind of like too cold in the shade, a little too hot in the sun. So we're trying to figure it out. But I think I might get in the sun and warm up in a few minutes. So we'll see. Well, great to see all of you. Great to worship the Lord with each of you here today. And for those of you who are visiting apostles, uh, we want to give in a special welcome to you. And we're so thankful again that you've chosen to gather with us today to worship. Um, you've kind of landed with us in the middle of a book of the Bible, the book of Galatians. And uh, there's a lot of kind of technical stuff going on here, things that are connected to previous arguments that have already been made in this letter. And so I'm going to do my best to kind of connect all the dots and bring home the main point of this passage for us today. Now, early in our marriage, right about the time that Erica and I had our first son, Judah, um, we were encouraged by some, some friends to create a living trust. And if you're not familiar with a living trust, a living trust is a legal document that basically spells out what would happen to our children and also to all of our assets in the tragic event that we should both pass away. And simply put, for our legal trust, we designated somebody 
uh, as a guardian over our children who would be responsible to care for them and raise them until they come of age. And also this guardian would be a custodian over all of our assets, basically controlling those assets until our children come of age and are able to receive the things that we want to pass along to them. Well, this is the very analogy, although it's an kind of ancient uh, practice of it, but it's the very analogy that the Apostle Paul is using here in the beginning of chapter 4. In verse 1, he begins with this phrase where he writes, I mean, which tells us that what Paul is doing now as he transitions into chapter 4 is he's building on or further explaining what he was already talking about in chapter 3. And specifically, he's building on the analogy that he introduced to us last week in verses 23 through 25, when he said there that the law of Moses was like this guardian over the Jewish people until the time that Jesus, the Messiah, came on the scene. And so he's going to build on that, again, analogy now in chapter 4. Now, what I want to do before we get into these verses is I want to give you the whole message in a single sentence. I want to just summarize the point of this passage, and then we'll kind of break it down in parts. Now, rather than summarizing it myself, I turn to John Stott, who's a much better preacher or was a much better preacher and scholar than I am, but he aptly summarized this section this way. Once we were slaves, now we are sons how then can we turn back to the old slavery? Again, once we were slaves, now we are sons. How then can we turn back to the old slavery? I titled this morning's sermon, From Slaves to Sons. From Slaves to Sons. And I'm going to use that, kind of use John Stott's breakdown of this passage as our breakdown of points in the text this morning. So the first three verses are going to cover the idea of from slaves, from where we've come prior to coming to Christ. It was slavery. Let's reread these first couple of verses. Galatians 4 verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul here is imagining or asking us to imagine a young child in a wealthy home in the ancient world. And you can imagine this little boy running around the estate and he's being cared for by guardians. And these were probably slaves within the household who were in important positions. They were managing other slaves and they were managing and watching over the children. And so this little guardian or this little um, heir rather is running around living in this home and he's under the control of other people who get to tell him what to do. They make the decisions for him and they essentially run his life while he's an adolescent. Now, he's probably unaware when he's really young that he stands to inherit the entire estate when he grows up. And he's unaware of that. He doesn't know that this is all going to become his. He's just living his life. He's being bossed around, told what to do, and he's living. But again, he doesn't know that everything that is his father's is one day going to pass into his hands when he comes of age. And he probably learns that when he has his own Lion King moment 
Remember in Lion King when Mufasa takes Simba up on the top of Pride Rock and he tells Simba to look out over all of the grasslands and as far as his eyes could see, one day, Simba, you are going to rule over all of this. And finally, Simba grasps the magnitude of the kingdom that will become his. And so this is the position of this minor in the analogy that Paul is setting forth here, that he is under these guardians, under these custodians, but one day he will be inheriting everything. <clears throat> Verse three, now Paul makes the connection, the spiritual connection to the people of God. Similarly, Paul says here in verse three, when we, meaning the apostle Paul himself, as well as all the Jews, were children, he says, we were no different than slaves, even though we as people stood as heirs of all that God the Father had promised to Abraham. So he's saying, look, we, we had these promises of this great inheritance made, made to our father, Abraham. And so these are our promises. But when we were like children, we were actually just no different than slaves. <clears throat> Excuse me, slaves. Now we know from last week that Paul conceives of the Jewish people being children in the time between the giving of the law to Moses and the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. That for Paul, in his understanding of salvation history, was when God's people, the Jews, were in their season of adolescence. They were still growing up. They were not full grown yet. And now he says that during that time, during this childhood period, this for God's people was a time of slavery. They were actually enslaved. So the question becomes, to whom were they enslaved? Who was their slave master? And the answer to that question in the book of Galatians is not to whom, but to what? They were enslaved to the law. We saw this last week. This is Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So Paul has been teaching that the people of God, the Jewish people, were enslaved to the law, that the law was sort of this guardian over these minor children in the household of God, dictating the way that they lived their lives, running their lives. They, they were not truly free as the children of God under the old covenant. Now, it's odd, though, that he says here in verse 3 that they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world rather than saying what I just said and what he said in chapter three, which is that they were enslaved to the law. So he doesn't in verse three actually say they were enslaved to the law, although we know that's what he means. He says they are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if you look at verses eight and nine, you'll see that this is the same thing that he'll say of the Gentile Christians, bondage to paganism before they came to Christ. In verses 8 and 9, we see again there that he's talking to these uh, believers in the church of Galatia who didn't have a Jewish background. They came from a pagan background, and he says that they too were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's saying the Gentiles were enslaved, the Jews were enslaved, and both of them were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? What is he talking about when he's saying elementary principles of the world? 
Well, in Greek thought, the elementary principles or the basic elements of the world were generally thought of as the physical or material elements that the whole world was made up of. And so in the ancient Greek world, they thought of the material world in terms of um, earth and wind and water and fire. These were kind of the basic elemental principles of the world. Uh, Another way that this was sometimes thought of, kind of the, the basic elements of the world in the ancient Greek world was Uh, in terms of the heavenly bodies. So the sun and the moon and the stars. And of course, in the ancient world, they looked at these heavenly bodies as as, uh, the ones that actually kind of controlled the seasons and controlled the calendar that the world followed. And so when you think of the pagans, they worshiped these elementary principles of the world. They either made Uh, they made these elements gods themselves. They deified these elements. Or at the very least, they worshiped the gods that they thought controlled these elements. And so, of course, if you were going on a voyage across the ocean, you would make the proper offerings and sacrifices to the god of the ocean. Um, If you were struggling with infertility, you would make the proper sacrifices and offerings to the infertility goddess, or to the fertility goddess, rather. Um, if you and your, your tribe or your group or your city were going to war, you would make the proper sacrifices and offerings to the god or goddess of war and so on and so forth. Now in verse 8, he says, Formerly, again talking to these Christians in the churches of Galatia who had come out of paganism, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So Paul's saying, look, you were worshiping idols. You were enslaved to superstitions and to false gods. But the confusing question is, why does Paul equate the Jews who were living under the law to these pagans who were worshiping false gods? And I'll confess to you that commentators have a million different answers to that question. There's no consensus on why Paul would do that um, other than to say that in Paul's mind, The point he wants to make is that whether you were Jewish or you were non-Jewish, prior to coming to Christ, you were in bondage to some system that couldn't save you. No matter what your background is, no matter where you come from, no matter what worldview you were raised in, before a person comes to Jesus Christ, you're enslaved. You're in bondage to a system that he says in verses 8 and 9 there, are both, it's a system that's weak and worthless. Weak meaning that it's a system that is powerless to save you. Whatever you're looking to, whether it's, again, uh, an idol of some sort, or whether it's even the Jewish law, whatever system you're looking to, to wring some meaning out of your life, and to find satisfaction and purpose, or some experience of salvation and deliverance, that thing is weak. It cannot actually save you. And not only that, it's worthless, meaning that it offers you nothing of real value if you choose to follow it. Now for the Jews, the law was never meant to save. We learned that last week. The law was temporary. It served a purpose of preparing God's people for the coming Messiah. For the Gentiles, Their idols could never save them. And so again, Paul's point in this section is that both Jews and Gentiles 
are in exactly the same place outside of Christ. They're slaves to religious systems that cannot actually save. And both of these systems are outdated according to Paul now that Jesus the Messiah has come on the scene. So there's no room for going back. The point for all of us this morning is that all people, as I mentioned a moment ago, are in this exact same place outside of Christ. The things that you think are going to give you freedom, the things that you think are going to deliver the purpose, the meaning, the satisfaction that you're looking for in life, they're going to disappoint you if you're looking for these things anywhere other than Jesus the Messiah. And humans have a knack for creating systems of self-salvation. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. Of course, that manifests itself in many cultures, ancient cultures, with building physical idols. But this is apparent in every culture. We look to things in our culture. It might be success. It might be money. It might be sex. It might be marriage and family. It might be a certain lifestyle choice. We look to these things and say, that's where it's going to come from. This is where I'm going to experience real meaning. This is where I'm going to experience control over my future and over my destiny. And friends, all of these things will sorely disappoint. So some people in the modern West look to false religions. Other people look to superficial spirituality. For others, it's a system of karma. For others, it's being a good person. And still for many others, it's authenticity. Being true to who you think you really are. Being sincere in your beliefs no matter what they are. That that is the ultimate good in life. The Apostle Paul is saying in very clear terms here, no matter what other system you create or subscribe to, you are nothing more than a slave. You're enslaved to a system that cannot save. But it doesn't end there for the people of God. In verses 4 through 7, we move from slaves now to sons. We talked about this last week, but Paul is going to help us to consider this at greater length here this morning. Verses 4 through 7, we are moving now to sons. Here's what he writes in in verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is amazing. See, the crazy thing about slavery is that you can never escape it unless you're rescued. You can't get out. You're a slave. You're in bondage. You cannot voluntarily leave. You have to be rescued. Paul here tells us that at the fullness of time, other translations have this as when the time was just right. This is the time that was appointed by the Father. At the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. This expression means that the law had done its job. The law had served its purpose. God's people, the Jewish nation, were prepared for the coming of the Messiah. For centuries, they had tried to obey the law. They had tried to earn God's blessings and keep the promised land and have God's favor and succeed. And they had tried to do all of that by obeying the law. And guess what? They failed 
miserably. How do we know? Well, there's plenty of evidence. It started with the captivity, uh, captivity rather, in Assyria when the northern tribes got conquered and hoisted away to a foreign land. A couple hundred years later, the Babylonians came and conquered the remaining two tribes, drug them off to Babylon. And now, at the point that Christ has come and Paul is writing this, God's people had been under Roman occupation for decades and decades. It was clear to the Jewish people that just through trying to obey the law, we're not going to get God's blessings because we can't obey the law. The law had served as a good tutor, pointing God's people to their need for rescue. And so now, when the time was just right, when God's people were exasperated, when God's people felt discouraged, there had been 400 years of silence from heaven, the time was just right, they could no longer look within. They could no longer look to Torah and to the law to get God's blessing. That's when God sent forth his son to bring about their deliverance. As I mentioned, the only way out of slavery is rescue. So the father sent a rescuer, his one and only son. Paul writes that this rescuer, Jesus, was born of woman. This means that Jesus entered into our humanity. That Jesus, although he is God the Son, became a man, fully human. So Jesus entered into our humanity. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. This is not just high-level theology talk. This is incredibly important for our salvation. What I mean is that if Jesus was not divine, then he could not bring God to us. But if Jesus was not human, he could not bring us to God. It was required that our Savior be both God and man. Jesus is uniquely qualified to rescue humans. Not only is Jesus born of woman, Paul says he was born under the law. He was born under the law. That means not only did he enter into our humanity, but he also entered into our slavery. Jesus was born a Jew. He stepped right into this system of obedience to the law. And the law required perfect obedience. And of course, again, we all have failed to obey the law, but Jesus stepped into that system and he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He was perfectly obedient to the law. He did, again, what we could never do for ourselves. And this is important because if Jesus was not righteous according to the law, then Jesus could never make you and I righteous before the Father. And what was his purpose in coming? In what ways does he actually rescue us? Well, verse 5 tells us the purpose of his coming was to redeem and adopt. To redeem and adopt. Or to put it differently, his purpose was to turn slaves into sons. Now, the word redeem is a term that deals with slavery. Redemption means delivery or rescue from slavery. It's paying our debt in full. So if you were in debt to a slave master, if you were a slave, you could be purchased out of that slavery, but you actually had to pay that price. And so when the scriptures teach us that Christ redeemed us 
from the law, it means that Jesus paid the price in full. Jesus paid your debt for you to set you free. Again, he's saying that he redeemed those who were under the law. Of course, Paul has in mind here the Jewish people who were under the law. But you need to know that he also has the Gentiles in mind. Paul would teach in Romans chapter 2 that not only were the Jews under the law, that the Gentiles are also under the law. He explains there that even though they didn't have God's law written for them, like the Jews did in the scriptures, they did have God's law written on their hearts. They had a conscience that God had given them, which operated as a law for them. Here's Romans 2, 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, look, every human being is under God's law. We don't have an excuse. Even if you've never picked up a Bible, even if you've never read the Ten Commandments, you don't have an excuse because God gave you a conscience which dictates what is right and what is wrong. How did Jesus redeem mankind? He doesn't tell us here in verse 4. But he told us in chapter 3, Here's Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus, on Calvary's cross, as he was nailed to that cross, paid the debt that all of us were obligated to pay. We all owed perfect obedience to God's law. We all owed perfect righteousness to God's standards. And again, none of us could pay that. None of us could pay that debt. All of us fall short because of our sin. So Jesus came down to this earth and Jesus lived a righteous life on our behalf. And at Calvary's cross, Jesus was nailed there and he received the wrath of God, the penalty for your sins and my sins so that we could have our debt paid in full. It's amazing. This is what Christ has done for us. This is how Jesus redeemed you from the law. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 5 says that he redeemed us and also that we experience adoption. Now, friends, this is the height of the glory of the gospel. Um, It's not just that Jesus paid for our sins and now we have to now, now we have our slate wiped clean, but from here on out, we've got to make our way through life. We've got to make sure we get to the finish line and we end up in heaven. Now, the good news of the gospel is that, yes, Jesus paid our debt. Yes, your slate is wiped clean, but now Jesus extends all of his blessings and his privileges as God's true son to you and me if we put our faith in him. Adoption is amazing. The highest privilege And the Christian life is to be known as a son or daughter of God. Adoption speaks of our new status. This is a legal term. It was a legal term in the ancient world. And it related to the changing of a person's status. Now, of course, today when we think about adoption, we generally think about that young couple that 
is hoping for a child and they might adopt a newborn or a three-month-old or a young, a young child and bring that child into their home and raise that child. But you need to understand that in the ancient world and in the Greco-Roman context, it was very commonplace for a man to adopt another adult. Um, this would happen all the time. Um, if you had a wealthy man who was childless, meaning he, meaning he had no heir, in the ancient world, it was a common practice to adopt, uh, generally be a servant that you loved in your home. You would adopt that person and make that person your son. And what that did is it would transfer all of your status now to that adopted son. It was a complete status change. They were before adoption, nothing more than a slave or a servant. But at the moment that you adopted that person, they are your legal heir. They now have your status. They have a brand new identity. They have privileges and they have an inheritance that they did not have before you adopted them. And this is why this is such an apt metaphor for what God has done for us in Christ. Through the work of Jesus Christ, you have a brand new identity. You have a brand new status. Although at one point you were a slave, at one point you had no hope of inheriting the promises that God had made to Abraham. Through the work of Christ and by faith in him, you are now a child of God, filled with brand new privileges, filled with an inheritance that is yours in Christ. It's amazing. Together, these two ideas of redemption and adoption provide a full picture of what Jesus did for us. He paid our debt and he grants us adoption into God's family. In verse seven, he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Complete status change. It's amazing. Now, one of the struggles sometimes for children who are adopted into families that already have natural children is the struggle to feel that you're, that you're loved the same way or that you belong in the same way as the natural sons and daughters. The Gentile converts must have felt that way, especially when the Jewish Christians could point to their long history as the people of God. And even more so when these Judaizers, these false teachers had come into these churches in Galatia and were able to say, hey, we've got the law. God gave us the law. We're really God's people. And if you want to really belong to the family, you need to start adopting the practices of the law, these things that set us apart as evidence that we are God's people. And so these Gentile converts must have felt sort of like second-class family members. And so Paul does something amazing here. He shows us that the evidence that a person is truly a child of God, listen, is not their reception of the law, but their reception of the Spirit. This is what Paul says in verse 6. The true evidence that you are a child of God, that you've been adopted, that you've had this status change, is not that you received the law, but that you've received the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, we see that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our adoption and our inheritance. He's the one who gives us the confidence and the ability to cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now the word Abba, as many of you know, is an Aramaic 
term. Aramaic was kind of the common uh, language in Palestine uh, at the t- at the time of Christ, and the word uh, refers to a father, but it's done in an intimate way. Of course, a modern equivalent would be uh, daddy or dad or papa. It's again not just father. It's this is this is my my dad or this is my papa. It's this intimate familial term. Now it's interesting though that Paul would use this Aramaic term when he's writing to people who spoke Greek. These Christians in Galatia didn't know Aramaic. So why wouldn't Paul, if his point is just to say that we call God Father now, why wouldn't he use a Greek term to convey that? Why does he hold on to this Aramaic expression? Well, the answer is this, and this is really profound. It's the exact same word in the exact same language that Jesus himself used to refer to his heavenly father. And the point is this, the spirit of Christ in us enables us to see ourselves standing in relation to God in exactly the same way Jesus does. The spirit of Christ in us enables us to see ourselves standing in relation to God in exactly the same way Jesus does. Just stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, understood himself to truly and fully be the Son of God. Jesus understood himself to be perfectly and fully loved by the Father. And the Spirit of Christ that dwells in our hearts by faith enables us to see ourselves as truly being the sons and daughters of God, to see ourselves as being perfectly and fully loved by the Father. This is amazing. This is what the work of the Spirit is doing in our lives. So the Spirit's presence in our lives is the experiential evidence that we are God's children. Sometimes when I've witnessed to non-Christians, they've asked me, were you completely certain that Christianity was true before you converted? Or was it kind of like taking a blind leap of faith? Is that what you have to do to become a Christian? And, and the way that I've answered that is that there is a level of certainty that I had before I came to Christ. I think you can have a level of maybe you could call it intellectual uh, certainty. You can study Christianity and look at the evidence for it and say to yourself, yeah, this is rational. This is a reasonable faith. But in another sense, at the level of experience, you can't be totally certain that Christianity is true until after you believe. Because it's once you put your faith in Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit, that God the Spirit takes up residence in your, in your heart and confirms to you that you are in fact a child of God, that this in fact is true. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us that experiential evidence that we are in fact children of God. So it's certainly not a blind leap of faith, but it will always require a step of faith. And once you take that step, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. And you come to an even greater degree of certainty that this is true and that God is my father 
and that I am his child. It's sort of like the question, can you know that you know that you know that you are marrying the right person before you get married? The answer to that is, I mean, no, not if you're looking for scientific proof like you can get in a lab testing that this is the right person. You're not going to get that before you get on your knee, guys. So if you need to pop the question, just do it. If she's godly and she loves Jesus, just do it. You're never going to get that scientific proof. It's not 100% certain. You don't get that. But, but what you do is you get to know this person and you get yourself to a level that you are reasonably sure that she is, in fact, the woman that she's presenting herself to be. You fact check it with some family members. You talk to her friends. You get to know her. You spend that time and you finally get to that point where you go, you know what? I'm confident that she loves Jesus. I'm confident that she loves me. I'm confident that she's going to be a wonderful spouse. And you hit your knee and you pop the question. But it's only after years and years of being married to her and seeing her faithfulness, seeing her character, seeing the way that she loves you, that you finally are able to say to yourself, oh my gosh, I made the right decision. She was the perfect person for me to marry. Oh my gosh, I'm going long. Okay, I better cut to the chase here, you guys. I was thinking, daydreaming about my wife. This is going to go on forever. <laughs> so these Galatian Christians are slaves who had become sons. But finally, in verses 8 through 11, he wants them to understand that if they do give in to these Judaizers, if they do now revert to the law, they're just simply trading one form of slavery for another. Paul looks back to the BC days of these Gentile Christians. He says, formerly when you did not know God, he says they were enslaved to superstitions and to idols that couldn't save them. But he says, but now that you've come to know God or more fundamentally to be known by God, how can you turn back to slavery once more? He says, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. He's pointing to their observance. Some of these Gentile Christians in Galatia were starting to adopt the Sabbath and other aspects of the Old Testament law. So what Paul's saying is instead of looking to idols to deliver them and bless them, now they'd be looking to the law to earn God's blessings and favor. favor. They're trading one outdated system of religion for another. And Paul's question is very direct and simple. He's saying, look, why would you want to go from a slave to a son back to slavery again? This doesn't make sense. You've already arrived in Christ. You already belong to God. You are already a son of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You're already an heir to the great inheritance that is Christ and is now yours through faith in him. Don't turn back. I've been saying all along in the book of Galatians that the way forward in the Christian life is the same way you begin the Christian life. It's through faith in the son of God. And Paul's already explained in the beginning of chapter 3 to start by faith and then try to be perfected by works is to abandon a position in the family for a spot as a slave. Who could think of such a thing? When you think about the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, we can understand the son who had gone out and lived this reckless life and squandered his inheritance. We can understand him thinking about his relationship with his father and saying to himself, I don't deserve to be a son, so I would gladly be a slave in my father's house. But it's unfathomable to think of a person who would say, I'm a son in my father's house, 
but I desire to be a slave. Who would do such a thing? Paul is saying, don't be so foolish. You're already a son. Do not then return to slavery. Now, obviously, most of us are not tempted by paganism. We're not tempted to worship Poseidon or Aphrodite or Zeus. But many people are tempted to justify ourselves through our obedience, whether to God's law or some other standard that we've created for ourselves. And we think if I'm just good enough or I'm just righteous enough or I can just clean myself up enough, that's how I'm going to have God's favor in my life. That's how things are going to start going the way I want them to go. And many of us, even many of us that have been raised in the church, fall into this temptation. And so the point here today is simply this. To do so is to bring yourself into slavery rather than walking in the freedom that belongs to the children of God. Don't think that way. It's not about getting yourself together. It's not about following rules to secure God's favor. It's about relationship. And that relationship comes to you as a free gift from God to be received by faith in the Son. And if you have that, then the Spirit of God himself takes up residence in your life, enables you to pray to God as your Father. And if that's the case for you, then you're already rich. You've already arrived. Things are already going right in your life. So do not revert to slavery. This morning, we've been reminded of our status before Christ came into our lives. We're just slaves in bondage to some system of salvation that is weak and worthless. We've also been reassured of our current status in Christ, that we are adopted sons and daughters. Because we have the Spirit of God, the Son, in our hearts, we know that we are his children. And lastly, we've been warned this morning, warned against turning away from faith and trust in Christ to any system of salvation that promises us life and blessing and reward. To do so would be nothing short of a complete disaster. It would be to turn our backs on our freedom as the children of God to once again enter into slavery and bondage to this fallen world system. May it never be so. Let's pray. Father, we are once again blown away by the truth of the gospel. That even though we were all enslaved to systems of self-salvation, different systems of, of understanding that we thought could bring about what we really needed out of life in time and eternity. Despite that, Lord, you loved us and at the fullness of time, you sent forth your son to redeem us from the law, to redeem us from the penalty of our sins and to bring us into your family so that we could be sons and daughters of God. Lord, we're so thankful. We're rejoicing once again this morning in the joy of our salvation. But Lord, we know that the temptation to turn away from just simple faith in you and to continue to try to find our identity or our security in some form of obedience or some level of spiritual maturity and righteousness, that temptation is always present in the Christian life. But Lord, to jump on that performance treadmill is an exercise in futility. So Lord, we pray this morning we'd be once again encouraged 
to just continue moving forward in faith in the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, we're so thankful that the Spirit is present in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to reassure us of our status as children of God and to continue to lead us and guide us into the freedom that was purchased for us at Calvary's cross. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, family. Let's worship the Lord together in song.